welcome to the show. If you have any questions or comments, please call 612-424-2445 or email podcast at the society pages.org. Shout out to our fans at Gothenburg University in Sweden. Thanks for your support. have a thesis, a different thesis, but uh, (laughs) no, talking about all this stuff, you know, um, uh, on the new book stuff, uh, Peter Bear uh, was on the podcast this week, um, and David interviewed him, and um, that that very one, but um, he has a new book out uh, about Hannah Arnt, how do you say her name? Uh, Arendt, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Hanna. Hanna Arendt. have to edit that one. Um, and uh, from what I can get from the um, the episode, basically Dr. Bear is making his argument that, you know, she saw totalitarianism as a kind of radically new type of phenomenon uh, that happened in Nazi Germany and in the Bolshevik re- revolution in Russia and that social scientists kind of missed the whole point when it while it was occurring and even afterwards have failed to see the relevance of this movement and and basically in part is making a critique of the social sciences as being kind of a, a space in which people aren't really dealing with new ideas but are just reviving old ones and using the past to explain the present in kind of these old and kind of um kind of, I always say kind of, these uh, used ways. And he is a little bit uh, open to that critique. And um, he mentioned something to the effect of, well, you know, in sociology, I feel like we reduce everything to race, class, and gender. And you go to the conferences, and it's every phenomenon that sociologists come into contact are reduced into these categories um, where we basically know what the conclusions, the results, the framing going to be before even entering a room. And I think it makes for a lot of unimaginative work. And that is a problem. We've become overly, overtly ideological. So there isn't a whole lot of diversity in the opinions of sociology, but we're also just not creating anything new. We're just reducing everything into um, the taken and grant, granted assumptions of our discipline. And so I wrote a, a post um, to that. I was like, well, I think, you know, that's comment an interesting what they call them. post comment. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I said to the effect, well, I think it's okay. Um, I, don't, I think it would be a mistake to say that we're overly ideological because we do this. I think that every discipline um, gives priority and emphasizes certain aspects of the social and perhaps sociology rightfully is you know putting its hat on this um orientation of of looking at the social the race class gender aspects of the social phenomenon because there's other disciplines who focus on rational action of actors or the aggregate of rational actions and other disciplines look at the cognitive structures or the neurological underpinnings and i don't know um and then i was surprised that he actually responded to it I can't remember exactly what he said, so... I can't. Okay. Let me see. Let me think really hard. Thanks for these comments, Arturo. Granted, sociology today is still capable of producing work that is creative and dissonant. 
Overwhelmingly, however, it is characterized by repetitive statements, categories marching in, how did he put that, lockstep, and by political and moral timidity. Wow. <laughs> you must be looking Something at like that. <laughs> That's pretty good paraphrasing. Um, so I, I don't know. I think uh, while I hear his critique about the repetitive statements of uh, sociology, why, why should we be afraid of that? You know, we can't cover everything. We, it's not always going to be, um, you know, there is no such discipline in which you fully understand a phenomenon. It would be kind of, I don't know, arrogant to think that one has the capacity to fully understand anything. Um, we are but, the one true science. Yeah. <laughs> the the way this is being discussed concerns me a little bit because I, I understand and I want to agree with the point. but Which point? The general point that we you – know, Your like point or his point? <laughs> I certainly point agree that author? sociology is ideological. I, I certainly agree that there are some problems of scope. I don't really have – you've used words like reducing and, and things like this that we're being somehow intellectually dishonest in focusing on race, class, and gender. Well, he's he. I would say it comes from his language, the idea of okay. reducing. Okay, so he's um, saying that. Yeah, and and I'm just going to say, well, let's assume that there is a certain amount of exaggeration. Like it's it's. I won't say it's it. We're being dishonest, where we're like, look, you can see race, class, and gender here. Um, I rather believe it's like, well, look at the utility of thinking about race, class, and gender in this aspects. Is it the most important thing? That's for you to judge, <laughs> but here's the often unspoken race, gender, class story that is going on in this phenomenon of basketball or fast food consumption or health disparities. Well, that's inherently <laughs> race, class, gender, but like it's, it's, I think, no, it's um, not. I mean, or, it's not to normal people. People don't right. think health disparities and think race, class, gender. Go right. Yeah honest to say that we emphasize it I actually probably one of the examples it. of where the race class gender paradigm probably is most underutilized is in health disparities where everyone treats it as a matter of individual choice on the one hand people just need to eat better or it's all mcdonald's fault for advertising at young kids or something right or looking at the interaction between you know like i, I was talking to my uh, fiance about this like the interaction between patients and their uh uh, and their doctors. And while you can teach doctors to be better clinicians and being attentive to cultural issues, like health disparities kind of exist outside of that doctor patient interaction in certain respects. I mean, it's important to study that and sociologists do, but things that happen long before that interaction and things that are happening outside of that interaction is creating health disparities as we understand it. Um, and so but, you know, we're, we're programmed to see everything in an individualized case. I mean, it's natural to do so, and there's probably some adaptive qualities to think about it. But sociology is bringing up the more difficult um, framework of thinking about it as non-individualistic and, you know, this kind of structural reasons for health disparities. Talking about totalitarianism and, and whether or not the social sciences missed it when it happened or were uncreative and thinking about it afterwards like more of you know is it problematic that um we have such a focus on race class and gender um where at times it may seem 
to an outsider who's going to a conference, the ASA for the first, very first time and or the second time and realizes like, wow, this race, class, and gender is at the core of everything that you guys do. And it's always complicated. And any phenomenon that you find um, has a race, class, gender story to it um, that's not spoken. And is that problematic for a discipline? Is it is it over-repetitive to keep saying that over and over again? And what's the point of saying it? And is it distorting reality to a certain extent? And I would actually, I would say to a certain extent, we are distorting reality. I mean, you can't help but distort reality um, and have a certain bias to it. And I think that's the sociolog- sociological bias. Um, and There's... I think it should be in dialogue with other disciplines that have other biases. I don't. I just I th- don't believe that sociology I is. I still don't understand what we're talking about. This race class. I think there are several different discussions going on at the same time. So I think Arturo, okay. if you could, you just kind of maybe 10, 20 seconds ago gave kind of a summation of a bunch of questions, and I think we need to bracket them out. Okay. Because overlapping, it's going to get really confusing. First of all, like this, the race class gender thing. Um, I don't necessarily think that that's. I mean, that's. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I guess. I, wanna, I don't even questions. know if I want to go there. I, see, I don't. Uh... Is race, class, and gender the inherent? You know, the. Is this too academic? Is it really? Yeah, I mean, have you guys of, felt that kinda... way? At What's conferences, that? that race, class, and gender dominate everything? Because I've never felt that way. See, I don't feel that. I don't feel that way. And I also don't think it's it's I think it's too inside stuff. It's, no, I mean I don't I, I think that there's kind of the I think there's definitely a race class you can I don't know, when you say race class gender approach to sociology, I kind of know what you mean. But I don't necessarily think like historically or even in the present that's like the dominant way to think about things. I do think that I mean I mean, this is just kind of a personal bias of mine, but I think like sociologists who say, you know, like. But see, I actually, I think I'm trying to argue kind of an outsider's perspective of the discipline, and not that we everybody believes that they're doing stuff of race, class, and gender. But I would imagine somebody outside of sociology feels like that's what we always do. Anytime they have heard of sociology, they think, well, it's kind of a lefty biased. Um, perspective and they're going to talk about inequality like i feel like that's the trope of sociological research when you hear about it if people understand what sociology is like i feel like that's one level of understanding most of the time they're like i don't even know what a sociologist studies but if they have like are at least familiar with you know maybe something they've heard in the news is that like oh sociology stands in for code for talking about inequality and is that problematic you know and i i don't really think it is um and but you're right maybe this is to like envelop in, in too associated with like you know one's disciplinary identity that maybe is not that interesting for i just people on the outside but and i, and I, I kind of I heard think that that's david's i think there's the stereotypical yeah sociologists are leftists they're going to give the leftist response i mean i think that's that exists that that belief and assumption about what sociologists are uh, I don't think it's an accurate representation of what sociologists do. I think, I mean, I think there is a left liberal bias to sociology and sociologists, but I don't think that that's necessarily the kinds of stuff most sociologists spend all their time doing or thinking about. Because you Again, know, when I was like yeah. listening to David's interview, I could kind of see he liked that critique of sociology, and I, I felt like he believes that. And and I kind of heard in the Bear interview, and again, we don't want to mention him but it almost seems like there's an institutional incentive to talk about these issues 
um, and bring up this inequality issue. And that's why the discipline is biased. And I see why that can be really bad at certain extremes. But I think there's always institutional incentives to frame things in a particular way. Well, when I think – I mean when I think of like the the bad – like caricature of the sociologist who's always going to find the problem being rooted in racial class or gender differences. Like, I, I mean, I, I guess I just, I, I think, yeah, that, that sort of caricature exists, but I mean, I think there's a more general thing where sociologists look at problems and see individuals making choices. Sure. But they see individuals making choices in certain institutional and structural contexts. And if you look at those institutional and structural contexts, that is what is generally driving the larger population level patterns you see. And it just so happens that since sort of the in the right sort of right wing thinking for the last 20 or 30 years, even talking about and acknowledging that those things matter for individuals making decisions is considered leftist. Therefore, sociologists are always taking the leftist position by simply talking about social structure. I think that's all that's going on. I don't think it, I think it's completely distinct from whether or not we have new ideas about race, class, and gender. I mean, if we did have brand new, great, brilliant ideas, breakthroughs in the field of sociology, they would probably still look a lot like saying, look, it's these institutional and structural dynamics that are causing these changes. And be- <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I don't know. I'm just, I don't understand. I, I go on saying I don't want to talk about this and then I don't shut up. like maybe it would be bad if we lived in an environment where everybody was always talking about structural inequality you know maybe if like i don't know what the narratives are like in communist china but let's for assume that over there everybody has this really strong class consciousness and maybe in that context sociology would be essentially a propaganda machine that just follows with that narrative but i feel like again you're still you're taking the caricature of sociology and saying that that is somehow actually sociology and trying to defend it. And I'm saying that's ridiculous. Like, even if we all were sociologists, if we all internalized sociology, we wouldn't necessarily walk around attributing everything that every individual does around us to a being a pure byproduct of their, like, socialization. Like, th- we might do that, but that wouldn't be sociological either. That would just be stupid. And I, I know, but I think, I think it's not... I just think it's it's not being stupid. It's... The institutional bias of giving priority to certain data points and de-emphasizing other data points. We don't talk about personality issues. We don't talk about um, – or we were beginning to talk about home. emotions, um, but we we emphasize class, gender-based inequality forefront in the analysis of anything that we do. So like, yes, I don't agree that the caricature is 100 percent representative but there's some truth to it, and I don't think it's anything to say. Well, even if it was that caricature, I don't think it, it's really a bad thing. It's it's. Do you really think that, that a true social science can exist? Um, that if you take enough methods class, you can truly understand something. And I think, just to be honest, is like you know, sociology has its limits. There's certain things you can't see um, by just a certain institutional perspective, but. Like I said, that's why I think you have to have a dialogue with people seeing it in different ways um, and acknowledge that, like, this is what – this is the side of the story that we're always going to talk about to a certain extent, and there's certain uses to do, to it. But no, we don't have all the answers, and I mean I, I, that's 
I think that's just being honest and uh, embracing that caricature as opposed to saying, no, social sciences um, is a type of uh, knowledge that you can figure out world problems. And if only we had more sociologists studying these issues, we could figure out the solutions and make the world a better place. And I think that's not quite true. Again, there are several things going on here. There's a, a larger, slightly more abstract discussion about essentially the epistemological foundation and reach of sociology as a field and our methods and theories and so on and so forth. There's a separate discussion about how that can be brought to bear on actual, whether you want to call it social problems or the real world or whatever term you'd like to use. And I agree with one and disagree with the other. I was a huge jerk when I started grad school taking kind of a strong postmodern position on the limitations of the social sciences and of science more generally, but especially the limitations of the social sciences, that what we were coming up with made sense within the confines of our discipline and maybe a constellation of disciplines. But ultimately, it was just a best guess. And ultimately, we were lying to ourselves and we thought we were you know, responding to reality or contributing to reality. And it was just a big sort of lie that everyone agreed to. And that's the kind of language I use that made it a real kind of jerk thing to do. But yeah, it's it's a general, I think, a, an increasingly accepted sort of axiom of any intellectual labor that you're going to be true as much as it's true. But this this notion of, you know, an absolute truth to anything or something that's that's universal and perfect is is not really worth talking about because it doesn't exist anyway. As far as sociology having more of an influence on public discussions, on policymaking and stuff like that. I do think there's I, I do think it would be important because I think the, the perspectives and the data, the research that we come up with is largely ignored and could serve to better purposes in the public sphere. Is, is that related to what you were talking about? Am I on the right page here? Yeah, I, I, I think you are. I think um, I mean, this critique that we can't understand, you know, everything i think that's central to it but and i, I think guess the it's... whole race class gender focus of the discipline if if it actually exists and i think it's debatable is right. probably a good thing because the one thing sociology might need that i don't think it's had for quite some time is a consensus about what sociology is you know you were saying if you go to asa you see race and class and gender everywhere and john and i said we disagreed with that because i see all of this stuff <laughs> to be cynical that i would never care about not right. only because it's outside of my personal interest, but I just don't know why anyone would bother studying that. Like, right. There's a lot of sections that I don't think need to exist and so on and so forth. It's, it's, it's a blessing and a curse for sociology that we can have a scope that hits whatever we want to study. That's why I got into the field, but also gives us a lack of a center where people coming into the field, you know, we can have a bunch of pe people who take intro to sociology and still don't know what sociology is where we can have it where you ask job candidates, what is sociology, and they'll trip over the answer. I guess I, I, I guess that's what I'm trying to say in a way. It's like if there was a core, if it happened to be race, class, and gender, or inequality, if that was one of the core things that we do, and certain groups want to believe that that's the core and other people don't, I guess I'm saying that I would be okay with that. Um, and you know, and then your second point about you know people doing things you just don't really care about. Like yeah, I think everybody has that experience at the ASA. And I mean, interestingly enough, I think it's been working on this book podcast thing and talking to people about their projects. And sometimes I don't agree with the methods that they use or even like the 
project that they're doing doesn't seem that interesting to me, but I've kind of discovered that what I really like is hearing about anybody who is taking some study seriously. And even though it's they're doing something that I wouldn't necessarily do, I have come to appreciate that like they're putting a lot of effort into it and uh, are creating this book. I mean, creating a book takes an enormous amount of energy and effort. And um, albeit it's limited, whatever conclusions they get, I think it's like commendable. And it's interesting to get what they're trying to say. And I think before this time, I used to just dismiss people who had a different disciplinary perspective and say, well, that, that perspective is so limiting. You know, like, oh, an economist is just thinking about rational thoughts. It's it's just not interesting to me. And I guess what I'm saying is that – I guess my view is that everybody has these institutional biases, and of course some of them – some institutions have more prestige and more clout and more leverage in you know the public sphere or, or you know the marketplace of ideas, and you know that's something to discuss. But I appreciate that there are disciplinary boundaries, and maybe that's – our disciplinary boundary is inequality. Maybe people do see sociology as just always talking about inequality. And I don't think that's a, such a bad thing because we could just do that well. That could be our niche in a way. Um, it's the doing it well point that's the problem. I agree a lot with what John was saying before, that there's this caricature that's out there that's fairly influential about why we do what we do. And there's a problem with fitting into the context where, at least my take on it, the way in which sociology often goes about studying issues of inequality is is going to strike a lot of people as politically biased, even though we know, or we'd like to think, that it's just it's based on evidence. It's based on the way things work. That you know, talking about class doesn't make it biased. We're talking about class because class exists and has effects. And I th I think there's a lot of confusion about that. That we do a very bad job with both in terms of what we publish and especially how we teach it. Because I think more than most disciplines, sociologists in the classroom feel a need to get into the politics and feel a need to represent certain positions. See, that's and every, every discipline has that, but I think it's troublingly prominent in sociology. I think it's not so much the classroom that's to blame as that's the culture within the discipline. Um, I mean, people want to portray. Oh, yeah, them, they want to portray themselves and convey a. They want to be down. They, they exactly. They want to fit in. They want to show that they're they have the sophisticated, enlightened point of view of whatever it is they're trying to use, and they'll use whatever you know language and 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 theoretical ideas will make them appear to be. You know, I mean, it, it sounds ridiculous and petty to make it sound like it comes down to status and being cool, but in a good large oh, part, totally. status and being cool in sociology means sort of a, having kind of a hip leftist kind of slant to you, to, you know, in a, in a lot of That whole issue has become a big part of my dissertation, actually, that, that there's not enough attention paid to being cool as a big motivator for a lot of these things. Yeah, I mean, we're discussing the wire, down. remember? The, I was saying get, getting the wire and like, yeah. you know. You get it. And, yeah. uh, it's totally signaling that you're the kind of, you know, you're not some you're not some conservative, you know, tight ass who doesn't know what's going on. And, and it's a, it's you're a convenient a center trope. You're a tight ass. Who... <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. But I think the, the, the thing is that I think that's where the stuff in the classroom comes from. I don't think it's necessarily a. Yeah, I wasn't trying to say where it came from. I think and it, within it's the, just a great the confines of a, of a classroom. But the classroom is where other people see it. Yeah. And I, 
Agreed. But I, and it's a trope that the kids understand. They're like, I don't know what to make sense of this class, and then you kind of get this reinforcement implicitly, like, oh, we want you to play this kind of leftist professor. And I think I've even said it before, like when I teach class, I find myself taking on these positions that I wouldn't necessarily usually take. Um, and but it's. <laughs> simplifies the narrative in a way for the kids like i don't want to get to the nuances of arturo's perspective on his kind of middle of the road politics sometimes extreme left like that's not important let's take on this caricature of arturo the radical (laughs) and see what he would say about you know social issues when i've been pushed on it like you know by students i feel like it's been pedagogically beneficial for them to hear that position like a well-articulated with evidence position about why, you know, it's better to think about this as an inequality issue as opposed to an individual choice issue, um, because I think that they're not getting that other perspective before. And I guess, you know, this all comes back to, yeah, I think it's okay to have a discipline that brings those issues to the forefront of the analysis and not at the back end of the analysis. It's the way we do that that I think is problematic because especially in introductory courses but across the board and and I think also especially in courses focusing on inequality, there's this notion that what happens in the classroom needs to be connected fairly intimately with some notion of the real world, right? And that bringing in students' experiences helps the discussion go along and that doing projects in the class as assignments that focus on those experiences – is a good way to get at it and to do service learning is excellent. And I don't intrinsically have a problem with any of that, but I think it does allow the focus to shift to more of an ideological position and, and increase the, the pressure to be cool and down more than if we did it a different way. Like, well, it, I think I just seen it done it badly where I think professors that I've seen TA, like they, uh, like, for instance, like I've been, I've seen professors who teach race, class, and gender, and just do it in a very interesting way, where they're always saying, "I'm not saying that this is the right way. I'm just saying that this is what this position is arguing. I'm not saying that you have to believe this. I'm just saying that this is what the reading is saying." And I feel like it's um, maybe it's a cop out, but it's a way of saying this is an interesting perspective, and I want you to think about it seriously. And then I've seen other professors say, "This is fact." This is – you think that the world's this way, but it's really this way, and actually if our government followed these policies and became like Sweden, we would see things become much better. And I feel like – wait a second. I, I think it's great to use Sweden as a counterexample, but we don't – like we're, we don't know. I mean don't tell the students that our science is hard – like a hard science that we can definitively say only if we implement these policies we would be like Sweden. I mean there's all sorts of other things wrapped up into that. And it's too simplistic and easy to push down because, you know, as soon as they leave the classroom and really seriously think about what you just said, um, it's 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 gibberish. I mean, it's not even science. It's like using science to claim your own kind of bias into it. And I, I guess I'm just saying, like, I've seen it done badly, and I I think we should just kind of take ownership about what it is and what it isn't. I don't know. I guess it's like in one way, it's like taking off the self righteousness aspect of it and saying no i'm not saying that this is the right thing i'm just saying here's a perspective about inequality and you know let's talk about real world examples in crime huh why do we have crime well these are very interesting ideas well the sociological perspective would say well let's look at you know the history and the social location of that 
neighborhood and community and who goes into that community and what kind of institutional factors make crime possible and what kind of uh, frustrations do individuals experience not as a you know unique aspect of that person but of the social fabric of that community you know what are the common right. individual issues and their frustrations and what is a, a perspective that's focusing on lack of opportunity or a life course perspective that sees you know certain groups at more risk of committing crime depending on you know their trajectories in their adult life and what do these perspectives help us understand um well, while an individualistic perspective or a moral perspective may be the right one to take or maybe you know the more accurate, that's what now what a sociologist does. A sociologist is emphasizing this other perspective. Um, I don't know. I mean I guess that's how I also see it is like when I work with people who aren't in sociology you know, and talking to doctors and social workers. Like I don't pretend to have the answers. You know, and I feel like that my job is to really bring this other perspective, and they can decide whether or not it's useful or not. Like Arturo is always going to be saying this same thing, and I feel like it's a worthwhile thing to say the same thing <laughs> in a way. I don't think it's a uh, hurts our discipline. Sure. As long as what we're saying is good. Though. <laughs> say what? I said it might Twist make in the a night. boring podcast though. kind of beer are you drinking uh there john um this is a fat tire oh that's such a cool beer to drink that's true i'm trying i'm signaling to our audience as you you could tell from the sound that it wasn't like like bud light or anything yeah i could tell and you could tell it wasn't pbr i mean it was clearly some sort of like um you know m- you know middle class yuppie professional kind of drink you know yeah which is basically me you know in a nutshell and you're drinking at the right time. I mean, usually, because here in California it's like twelve thirty, and drinking like in the morning that's a little sad. Drinking two thirty, it's a Saturday. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm just saying it's it's just right about the right time. I mean, I've been if you up, drink I've later, been up since like five thirty, so I can drink now. It's fine. Yeah, it's your. I'm just saying. Is that the, the way to calculate right. it? It's not. It's not a time of day. It's oh, totally. Distance from when you woke up. And and by the way, uh, the rapture's in three and a half hours here anyway. So oh, might yeah, as well enjoy it. That's um, right. Yeah. So yeah. Sorry, I interrupted a fascinating discussion with my beer sounds. Now you're trying to be cool, and that's what people do, isn't it? it why is. were you clear to say that it wasn't Bud Light or PBR? I, I why was were just, those your. Why no, was I was just trying to think of like what are the stereotypical beers associated with people, right? Like if it was a Budweiser, what would that say about me? If it was a PBR, what would that say about me? Because apparently PBR is cool again for hipsters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You would be a hipster. Yeah, yeah. but it's not. It's like, the... it's like a. It's like a. It's not a cool microbrewery, but it's like the kind of like the the microbrewery that everyone who thinks they like microbreweries now says they like, which is the you know the the um I can't think of the name of the the, the company right now that makes. 
fat tire, right? It's New Belgium, right? Yeah, New Belgium, right? <laughs> it says the guy who doesn't drink beer. <laughs> I'm a keen observer. It's, this is a lot of the important shaping experiences of, of my life have come from me being the only sober person in the room. <laughs> and when it gets to the point, if you're at a bar with people who are drinking where they've drank too much and you can't converse with them anymore, your options get limited. It's but like it's like if when you're we, an ethnographer, there's always something to see. Like you brought up the wire earlier. Like when we had that discussion a while back about saying you like the wire. Like for a while, that was edgy and cool, and now it's just you're just you know you're just saying you're just trying to communicate that you're a sophisticated television viewer um, of a certain cultural political you know leaning, and everyone's like, yeah, of course you like the wire, right? So like saying you like New Belgium is like, yeah, I like New Belgium beer. It's like, oh yeah. Sure you do. Everyone does. Whatever. You know, it's totally not cool anymore. It's like the mainstream, you know. And John, before before our tour came on and we were just bullshitting about music for a while, you were saying that there, there used to – you thought there used to be in the uh, 90s at least this notion of consensus about what was, you know, really well, big. What I was. never said that. I never said that okay. there was a notion of consensus. I was just referring to a entertaining article I read in, okay. uh, in the Onions AV Club. But basically, it's like they're sort of taking. All right, so Arturo, you're you're more or less the same generation as us. I know you're you're kind of old, but I'm kidding. Um, pour some sugar on me. Can you can you sing the verse to Pour Some Sugar on Me right now or the chorus? I mean, you don't no. have to. Just you can just I, say I, I yes. Don't, I, don't I mean, I would rather it. if you did, but if you just want to say you know it, then that's fine. I don't know it. I'm sorry. Seriously? Yeah. Pour some sugar on me by Def Leppard. Are you? You're just begging me to play it, aren't you? <laughs> Um, <laughs> I wasn't begging you, but I knew that you wanted to. You know that song. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Anyway, and... <laughs> the argument in the article was that, um, you know, that song, like, with the exception of Arturo and maybe two or three other people on the planet... <laughs> You know, like there was a time in the late 80s or whenever that song was released that there were like songs that were massively popular and artists that were massively popular and everyone knew who they were and everyone knew the songs, right? Whether you were eight or whether you were 80, right? Because that's just what was on. It was on and where when you went out in public, you heard it. When you turned on the TV, you heard it. That was just, it was pop music. And that doesn't really happen anymore, right? Like now no one, a lot of people don't even know the people that are on the top 10 or whatever of the billboard charts, right? You know, like, uh, the Grammys just happen and, like, Arcade Fire comes on and wins, and, like, most people are still like, who the hell's Arcade Fire, right? That was so hilarious. I've, um, I've talked about that before, but I still can't get over how funny that was. How funny what was? That they won? The the reaction to, well, kind I mean, of that they won, but the reaction to it was... I mean, who won the year before? Uh, I don't know. I'll look it up. Wasn't it, was was it Kings of Leon or something? Or was it Best Artist of the Year or something? Didn't like Kings of Leon wins. I mean, same sort of thing there. Like that's another kind of band where like there are certain segments of of the population where ki- certain bands and kind, kinds of music are, are enormously popular. But like the like genre spanning everyone knows who they are kind of thing seems to go away. Like we were we were looking at the Billboard.com um, and going. Chris, you can you can explain this again. But we were sort of looking at the top you know, top 100 lists and stuff, and I, I didn't know a bunch of them. I still want to use Arturo as our whipping boy for music, though. That sounds good. 
<laughs> what do you think? Cool right now? <laughs> what do you, what are you what are you listening to right now, man? Um, um, Girl Talk. Um, just discovered that recently. Uh, that's you, pretty cool. That's totally a you totally made up that answer. No, I didn't actually. You know, I actually still listen to it because uh, of the podcast when we talked about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, this podcast is influential. And then I was I listened to Pandora a lot, and I started listening to I don't know, Pandora R2D. isn't a band. Okay, R two DJ. <laughs> like he meant like Pantera. <laughs> what are you trying to say? <laughs> That's what I thought. I thought he said Pantera. Now, if your two <laughs> hits of the moment were Girl Talk and Pantera, you'd be on to something, <laughs> or you'd be on a particular drug. Uh, you were saying you um you were just about to bring up it sounded like RJD two. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, what do you like? Pandora works where you choose an artist and then it picks based on that, right? Yes. So what's your what's your pr- artist prime, as it were? Um, I think Ratatat. It's what I started out with, and then. Would you uh, start typing random sounds into the keyboard? <laughs> Kaplui. Ratatat tat. Kaplui's over, man. Their second album sucked. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't. I don't know. Yeah, there's not much to say in this conversation for me. I'm just a little bit not with it in terms of the music scene anymore. And it's kind of stopped. John, do you listen to any of those groups? Um, no. Have you heard? I, of mean, them? I listen to Pantera. <laughs> <laughs> You've heard of Girl Talk? Was that was the podcast the first time you heard of them? No. I mean, in fact, I think it's quite possible that discussing that was my idea because all of a sudden everyone on Twitter and Facebook was like, "Oh, I love the new Girl Talk." And I and I tried listening to it and didn't understand it. Or I didn't get what was so genius about it anyway. So I said we should talk about that and then and then you sort of led the discussion on that. So So I'd heard yeah, of it, but I, I, I didn't know. Like R J D two or Ratatat. No, I, I've never heard of either of okay. either of those. So like, Arturo feels that he's behind the times, but he's into stuff that there's a lot of chatter about that John hasn't heard of. Yeah. Sounds fair. But I'm so not I just don't claim to be cool, I guess. I mean, I, this is off No, but, the, but you're, you, know, you like, realize in this discussion, you're coming across as more cool than I am because I haven't heard of any of these people. Are they? Are these popular? Is this? Is this like cool? I think one of them stuff? is from Minneapolis too. Isn't? Uh... No, I don't trust anyone from Minneapolis. <laughs> <laughs> Who did you think was from Minneapolis? Isn't RJ? Is it RJ D two? RJ D two is from Columbus, Ohio. Okay. I don't right. know. I don't know if he's actually from Columbus, but they. Him and a guy named Blueprint represented Columbus for a while, but they both put out albums on Rhyme Sayers, which is from Minneapolis. Oh, okay. Well, I knew there was so some kind of Minneapolis, Minneapolis connection. connection. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so Minnesota nerds, let's get over this and get back to the point. <laughs> have you, so, Chris, have you heard of this guy named Prince? <laughs> um, just started getting to Prince. I don't know if you guys Oh, just to go back to our. Um, <laughs> yeah, I hear that all the time, man. <laughs> Runaway Train? All the time. I always laugh. Um, <laughs> album of the Year was what the Arcade Fire won. And the year before it was Taylor Swift, so no surprises there. Okay. Uh, just because we brought it up. Got it. Um, but the funny thing about them winning was everyone wanted these huge superstars. I mean, if you. So Arcade Fire was up against Eminem, Lady Antebellum, Lady Gaga, and Katy Perry for the album of the year thing. And for some reason, the big complainers that I thought were so hilarious were all Justin Bieber fans who thought that he was robbed both of the nomination and the award, I guess. Is, was because... Katy Perry really up for... Is 
All right, is Katy Perry? I, I I couldn't name a Katy Perry song. I know who she is, obviously. Like, is... and this is according to Wikipedia, so maybe it's not true, but it probably is. <laughs> but you were saying Katy Perry? Yeah, I mean, she actually ain't good. I mean, like Lady Gaga is pretty good. I I, I can appreciate Lady Gaga. Ooh, Katy ooh. Perry, I just the only stuff I've heard is just terrible. Is is so like, how do they determine who gets nominated even? Because clearly it's not just being popular, or else Arcade Fire would never have won. But right. if it was just being popular, then, I mean, if it's not about being popular, then why is Katy Perry on the list? The album of the year, all the Grammy voting is for the layman shrouded in secrecy, right? I know that there's the Academy that of recording arts or whatever it is that has a constituency that gets to vote. So I had, I had a friend who worked at a recording studio, and it was a big, exciting time when... Because the, the people they, that set up the studio were pretty big insiders in the music industry. And it was always a, a fun time when the Grammy nominations came around. Because everyone basically gets a ballot and gets to vote. At least for part of the stuff. Hmm. Um, but there's also, I, I mean, one imagines quite a bit of market forces going into <laughs> into what does this. And albums of the year nominations are usually also big sellers. And that's why Arcade Fire was always interesting. I mean, if you look at the previous year, it's an end of two, but we might as well roll with it. Your your winner was Taylor Swift. Your nominees were Beyonce, the Black Eyed Peas, Lady Gaga, and the Dave Matthews Band. So, you know, people have heard of these. Going back, just scrolling up here, it takes a – I mean, you have to go far back before you find cases, if you can find them at all, of there being artists that you – that maybe most people haven't heard of. But even still, if you've been paying attention, the Arcade Fire were kind of a big deal. Yeah, I mean... So I, I, it wasn't I, that outsider, I don't think. I'm, but I'm, considering what usually gets nominated, it was. But I'm, there's also, like, a hype machine, too, that's going to hype up the nominations after they get it. So by I mean, the time the award show even, actually comes around, you've heard of it. I was going to say, I don't even, like, pay attention to the Grammys. I mean, I would just assume that they would have to cite usually people... I mean, it's like it's a two-way street, right? I mean, they want to cite people that are well-known to a certain extent to bring prestige or acknowledgement and legitimacy to the award itself, right? I mean, why do sort why do why do institutions right? give out awards? Really, I mean, in part is to money, money, and also it's, it's a market no, money. The, uh, okay, yeah, but it also <laughs> legitimates the uh, actual organization itself, right? Like, but the organization you, is all about money. I mean, why does the uh, the, the the academy exists uh, to some extent it, it takes the form of a an advocacy group like the RIAA and the MPAA all these groups I feel like I said AAAA just a bunch there um, I guess it's, um, well I'm not they they, they, they lobby Congress they want certain legal changes and protections for their business and stuff like that usually um, beneficial to both the artists and the broader business that supports it I mean one I can make the argument that it is because if you're if you're making money, if you're selling records and so on and so forth, yeah, it's great for you. You get assumed status from winning the award or being nominated. You probably get increased sale. You get definitely get increased publicity and so on and so forth. There's the other people who say that it's a, essentially a like a cabal or a mafia that control – that's a gatekeeper on who can make money and who can't. And if you don't play the game and if you're not making a certain kind of music or don't have a certain image, then you're out and that hurts you. And people have been saying about that about the Grammys for years. Like it's not really – it's just a fight among the top 
the top 20 selling artists in the U- United States and everyone else is out of luck. Yeah. Right? Oh, and then there's like always um, – the thing that's always bugged me about the Grammys is that they always reward people sort of retrospectively, right? Like I think – yeah. Like I think last year Jeff – like the best um, instrumental song, I think Jeff Beck won. And it's like Jeff Beck's been making some of the most amazing instrumental songs uh, since like the 70s. And now he wins for what is arguably his weakest effort in, in decades. And that happens all the time too. Right. And and then there's always justifications that they have for, you know, for some reason that song or that album or that artist broke recently, even though they've been around for forever. I think there were some cases where albums won that were released several years ago, but they were sleepers and all of a sudden people got really into it. So, yeah, there's all sorts of crookedness going on with it. As a marker of coolness, it, it, the Grammys mean nothing, I think. Okay, so let's let's put the Grammys as because I, I think part of the point of this article was that was Arturo's idea that no one cares about the Grammys. Like people don't pay attention to this. Like it's you know th- th- there's not like here. Let's go back. Let's let's test. They this. they pay attention to it for different reasons. I mean the industry cares. Let's it's going to help you sell records. But for other people, you know, for for a long time I had a lot of fun making fun of the Grammys. Uh, 1985, Can't Slow Down, performed by Lionel Richie, won. 1986, No Jacket Required, performed by Phil Collins, won. 1987, yeah. Graceland with Paul Simon. Are you seeing it, Trent? Um, you too won for The Joshua Tree in 1988, and Faith by George Michael in 1989, right? Like, right. Uh, the argument in the in the article that I was sort of, we were talking about, was that these are these, there are songs on these albums that were huge hits that everyone knew about, you know? And then... I mean, maybe they were just making too much out of the Arcade Fire thing. I think that's possibly true. But I still, you know, I, I wouldn't recognize a song off Raising Sand by Robert Plant and Alison Krauss. There's no song off River, the Joni Letters, performed by Herbie Hancock. That I, I mean, talk about one of those retrospective, like, in honor of award winners, right? Uh, it's just, it, it seems like Grammys are less about... Uh, the, there, there's not like the okay, so we'll we'll use your language. The, the claim is that there's not this big consensus um, pop music anymore. I'll just defend that, right? These sure. these are completely different kinds of albums and award winners than who were who was winning in the '80s, where you heard those songs in every movie, in every shopping center, on every radio station. If you were alive during that time, you know songs of the by those artists from those albums, and or. Is it a function of a growing disjuncture between the stature of the Grammys, the the field of music sales in general, and what you hear a lot? Do explain. Yeah, because that was extremely inarticulate. What I mean to say is, um, if you go back far enough, the avenues through which you would hear about music were, compared to today, fairly limited, right? Do people uh, agree with that or no? Maybe. Are Such true? as? So where would you hear about music in in the '90s, say, or even in the the first half of the 2000s? Uh, uh, <laughs> Beavis <Really>? and Butthead. <laughs> yes. MTV. Okay. Now we're back to Pantera. <laughs> We've got one answer. <laughs> Just look back on your own life. I assumed you listened to music before, like let's say 2006. It was so, okay. So MTV, radio. I mean, friends. You know, just whatever. But but where did friends hear about it, right? MTV, radio. Sure. Yeah. Uh, in my case, uh, guitar magazines. So you know, whatever. All right. Teeny bopper magazines for the teeny boppers, pops possibly. Um, hmm. 
How much has that changed, though? I mean, so so now people have Facebook and Twitter, but... Right. These things still exist, but now, you know, you said you heard about Girl Talk through a bunch of Twitter and Facebook chatting, right? Well, sure, but if, if that had happened in the 80s, I probably just would have heard people talking about it at school or something. But I don't think... I mean, there were other things going on in the 80s about how people found out about it. It, ju- it just wasn't something everyone had access to. That is to say, there was this whole zine scene, right? These These self-published magazines or comic books or whatever form they took I'm editing that there was right this now. underground network of of trading and distribution for and the reason that you have such a vibrant and well-remembered indie and punk scene at the time was because there were tons of zines focusing on that music and now since probably the mid to like 040506 all that stuff's I'm getting into a separate argument here but um the one big sea change that I think we've seen in music over the last couple of years has been the rise of what we call indie. And indie is the new vernacular for cool. And because the recording industry especially got so knocked off of its feet by what else was going on in music that they didn't really directly control or connect to, they've been thrashing their arms in the water to try and stay afloat and stay current and not come off as an antiquated institution, which they really needed to do after they got hit so hard by, you know, the record buying or stealing or both public when file trading became a big deal, right? They really needed something to to justify their existence again because too many people were making fun of the Grammys and too many people were were talking trash about them. Okay, I, I it's get that. Secondary but... argument, but they needed to reestablish this institution. So I, th- I think the the arcade fire pick was partially a, a nod to that. But um, ah, I see. But I since think. then, the reason you have these other groups coming in and you, you kind of knock off that consensus is because they've been struggling to communicate to an audience that they're not sure how to communicate to or if it even exists. They're they're struggling to stay relevant. So there's no consensus pop music scene that everyone knows and agrees to and and likes is what you're saying partially i'm also uh, but but they've done a good job and now i think there is a new consensus it's not that like if you're going to say that in the 80s and the 90s there was one consensus now you might have two or three consents i I still don't know what the proper world is consensuses or consensi consensi it's totally consensi (laughs) if it's not it is now all right, well, that's our our lingua franca for it. Um, so so before you came on Arturo and Arturo, do you have a, a web browser open? I do. Right, I'll run you through the same exercise. This comes from my sociology and music class. Go to um, Billboard.com. So this is one of those times we're hearing the keyboard in the background. It's kind of funny. Kind yeah, of it makes sense. Yeah. He's actually doing there. It. This is live. Yep. Works. All right, so you see at the top on the banner it says charts? Yes. So if you click on that, this pull, this menu drops down. Okay. Um, I want you to open up the Hot 100 and the Billboard 200. Can you do both at the same time? If you have tabbed browsing, which I assume you do, then yes. Oh, okay. So you got them? Um, one second. All right. It sounds like you're typing on the biggest keyboard. (laughs) (laughs) 
okay, charts, and then the Billboard 200. Okay, both. Are. All right, so let's look at the Hot 100 first. Okay. What do we got on here? Um, let's see. Rolling in the Deep, E.T., Edge of Glory. Oh, you probably want me to say the names, huh? <laughs> Those are the songs. But like, like, this is music you've heard of or not really? Do you know about these people? I, I don't. Adele, Lady, Katy Lady, Perry, and Lady Adele, Gaga. They sound familiar. Uh, Lady Gaga sounds somewhat familiar. Yeah, I know who Lady Gaga is. <laughs> All right. Uh, Pitbull. Do you know Pitbull? Uh, no. All right. Black Eyed Peas, I assume you yeah, Unfortunately, yeah. we all know the Black Eyed Peas. Yeah. Jennifer you know Lopez. J-Lo? Yeah. Bruno Mars? You know Bruno Mars? Uh, yes, I do. Okay. Uh, Britney Spears, Chris Brown. Uh, so now let's switch over to the, the 200. Okay. So what do you got in here? Uh, Adele is the first one, right? And then various artists. Lonely Island, never heard of. Christina Perry, we were just talking about her. Uh, no, we, weren't. we weren't? We were talking about Katy Perry. Oh, <laughs> different people, I guess. Huh? <laughs> Beastie Boys, The Cars. Uh, so do you notice anything different between these two charts? I mean, besides the fact that obviously there are some people. Yeah, what am I supposed to notice right away? I'm asking you. <laughs> You're on the hot seat, man. Yeah, well, I don't know. I think you're asking the wrong person. I, I seem to know more people on the top 100 than the top 200. Okay, John, for you, you knew more people on the 200 than the 100, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're... And that perfectly corresponds to how we started this discussion. That Arturo, who who is in our, our sample of two, representing as the more in-touch, cool person by your musical interest, you knew more people on the Hot 100. And John who's the, the stuff that's outside of the mainstream or, or, or not charting, knows more stuff on the 200, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Stevie Nicks yeah, is awesome. Totally. So these are your two consensuses, and then there's a third one that we haven't discussed yet. But you've got the Billboard 200 is like how it used to be. If Def Leppard were still around, they'd be on, this, on the 200 chart. And uh-huh. the Hot 100 is where all the kids are. And this is the people who are slightly more cool or more, very much more cool than the people on the, on the 200. And it's, it's, it's how they measure it. If you look at the top, underneath the chart title, it says how they measure it. The Hot 100, popular songs across all genres ranked by radio airplay, audio impressions as measured by Nielsen, sales data compiled by Nielsen SoundScan, streaming activity data provided by online musical sources. So there's a bunch of data going into the Hot 100, right? Mm-hmm. The 200 is the album chart, and note the 100 is just songs, the top-selling albums according to SoundScan. So one measure is purely how SoundScan is doing, and the other measures all this different stuff. If you're old, or if you're really young, you might find your stuff on the Billboard 200, because you are either not able to steal music well yet, because you don't have uncontrolled access to the internet, or you don't know computers that well. And the way you get music is the same way you've always done it. You buy it from a store. The store might be online these days, but you still buy it from a store, right? Right. And that's why most of the artists on the 200 are people that, if you're young, you don't care about and maybe have never heard of. So my big example here is number 16 is Stevie Nicks. Like, no one cares about Stevie Nicks, but she's charting really well compared to how I would think. The Cars, with a comeback album, debuting at number seven. 
The Cars haven't been making music for how many years? Anyone know? 20 years, 20 odd years. <laughs> Since anyone cared about it, yeah. So close to 15, 20 years, possibly more. So that's what you get there. Now that's what I call music 38. You guys know these these albums, right? Is that yeah, like one of the, the things they sell on the commercials on TV? They sell them on TV, yeah. And it's collections of the, the, the best charting hot artist songs of since they put out the last one, probably. <laughs> I love Stevie Nicks. Uh, the One Way Island? This is the people who write for Saturday Night Live, and they're all joke songs. Oh, it's parody music. Heard of them. Like, I'm on a Boat was a real big song last oh. year, two years ago, with T-Pain on it. Um, that's them. Uh, the cool. Beastie Boys comeback album. These two boys haven't been relevant for quite some time. So what you're saying is that there's this big difference between the album charts and the song charts, and that wasn't, you don't think that was true in the 80s. Like, Pour Some Sugar on Me would have been at the top of the singles chart, and Hysteria would have been at the top of the album chart. Yep. Because they were measuring from basically the same source. The, the only addition they would have had were audience impressions, which is a measure of how many people are listening to a particular song played at a certain time in a certain place. It's their most sort of scattershot thing. But they're also trying to manufacture and respond to what's cool because the Hot 100 has to be – that's their youth chart, right? That's stuff where they're explicitly going after the youth audience. The reason they introduced all those other measures is because they weren't tapping into the youth audience, that 18 to 34 or whatever demographic that you want, probably 18 to 20-something if you really want to make the money because that should be their bread-and-butter record-buying public. But it's also the people who are not paying attention to stores anymore because they're at college and they can steal the music. Mm. Or you can just, so they open up, to find... or you can just open up Pandora and hear any of this stuff. Or go to like Groove Shark or something. Like you don't sure. even need to pay for singles. Yeah. You can get them you can go to YouTube and just watch it there. Whether it's an official video or just someone who made a background and play that over it. There's a, t- a ton of other ways to get at it and they needed to kind of respond to that. But you know, if you talk to most high school kids or college kids, the Hot 100 chart is what's cool to them. So see, I mean, I guess maybe I'm maybe I'm rushing too quickly to put a sort of normative spin on this, but like, what's wrong with that? I mean, basically, what you're saying is crap music that exists with stupid singles uh, for people who buy albums only for the singles. Right now, they don't have to buy the album to get the single anymore. They can just right. listen to the single. The and, when it, and when it gets old and boring, then they don't have to like haul CDs around with them or anything anymore. Whereas basically, you had sort of an audience for several decades or so where to hear the song you had to buy the cd and now you don't have to do that anymore and now the people there are still people buying cds but they're people who actually like music and want full albums that they can keep instead there's nothing wrong with that it's not a problem well for us i mean for anyone for the music industry though (laughs) but i'm just saying like it's not it's nothing new it's still pretty much the same as it ever was it's just slightly different they needed to respond to a certain market condition and a, a structural condition and they did and they were fairly successful at it. Like, if you listen to commercial radio, this is what you're going to hear. So, And it's not just a matter of them forcing it down our throats. There's a little bit of that going on. That's how they work. But people legitimately like this stuff. And, and you just needed two categories instead of the one category. Because the people who like Stevie Nicks weren't getting any shine 10 years ago. There was a whole bunch of stuff on the so chart that wasn't going to make it because the kids were still included in that chart. Now there's essentially two separate charts. It probably is going to work a lot better. See, if we didn't have it... Now, I've just got too many good episode titles for this one. What you're saying (laughs) is that it's Rhiannon versus Rihanna. 
Boom. <laughs> sure. Sure. But then there's the third consensus, which is everyone's still trying to figure out what's cool. And things are moving really quick now, right? So even if you have the hot single one week, it's going to take a lot of effort to still have the hot single the next week because you could fade away really quick. So people are spending tons of money and effort trying to, to stay afloat more than they used to, even though even when they used to still spend a lot of money to stay afloat. Because there's this whole world that's not being captured by, by this, which is cool kids. And the cool kids used to be the party kids, especially at the start of the 2000s. It was very mainstream and that was fine with everyone. And, and, and But when indie took over, now you have to struggle more to figure out what cool is. Because the whole thing with indie used to be that once it got big, it wasn't cool anymore. It's the whole like authenticity thing we've come back to many times, right? Where Oftentimes it is, yeah. yeah. But it's, it's also, I think, part of this sort of life cycle of musical subcultures and styles. It starts out really innovative and creative. And there's a small circle of people who are into it. And then through a variety of factors, whether it's you know the hard work of the artist or right place, right time, or they manage to catch a good deal, it gets bigger and bigger, right? And it grows. And more people get into it. And that's fine. And then after a while, it hits this point where too many people have gotten into it. And then it kind of dies out for the people who were originally involved with it. But there's this new audience that's just seeing it and just seeing it's cool. And what switches is, I think, this. So take – what's a good example? Do you guys remember when, like, punk came back in the 90s? You mean, like, Green Day and stuff? Like, sort of, like, new popular punk? Yeah, the pop punk stuff. Yeah. Sadly, so, yes. punk was still happening. There was a massive underground for it at the time, right? And then all of a sudden you have it hit MTV and hit commercials and – you know, it becomes the, the background track to a bunch of movie trailers and so on and so forth. It's it's the biggest thing going. And you had a bunch of people saying, oh, this is, you know, this is the new hot style. And then you had other camp saying, this is sellout stuff. It's not real anymore, right? The kind of insider-outsider thing that music kids always do. But the way it kept going was that, you know, <laughs> Green Day back in the day were, were a pretty traditional punk band. They they were you know squatting places. They were they were involved with left wing politics to some extent. They were you know there was a scene, a very small scene that they were kind of dealing with. If you ever talk to people who who were you know in the scene back when Green Day was touring, everyone has had something stolen from them by the members of Green Day because they would just kind of. You'd go around, crash at people's houses, and steal stuff on the way out. It was the punk rock house way of doing things. When it came back and was the biggest thing, it came back as fashion, right? And you could buy the shirt, and you could buy the look Dookie. pretty easily. Yeah. Dookie. And that's what's happening right now. That's why Arcade Fire was such a, a kind of interesting symbol for me. Indie used to be a pretty small community with its own logic of how to operate. And then as it, over the 2000s, it got really big and really mainstream. And now it's not corresponding to a particular subculture, a particular way of life, if you will. It's corresponding to a fashion, and that's it. And that fashion is huge right now. So then what's the new indie? What's the real indie? I don't think there is one. <laughs> because the notion of the sellout is kind of gone. You can be successful and still apparently have an authentic representation of the underground. And everyone's looking at the underground that, you know, if there is really indie stuff out there, doesn't exist. 
like no one's talking about it to protect it or it's not underground it's becoming a dated way to understand differences in music and the ways people appreciate music what's the new way I think it's this sliding scale of authenticity stuff. It, 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 there's no reality there. It's, if you can successfully claim that you're underground or that you're indie and people buy it, that's what it is. That's why I like The Wire. Thanks for listening to Sociology Improv. You can call and leave comments or questions at 612-424-2445. You can email us at podcast at the society pages.org. <laughs>